Good morning. Welcome to WSBC, West Shanghai Baptist Church. Someone asked me this morning, what does WSBC even stand for? Uh, I think maybe we don't say it too often. Um, so I want to make sure you know it's West Shanghai Baptist Church. My name is John McGlott. I'm a member here and I serve as associate pastor as well. And we've been talking through, preaching through the book of Luke. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. So you can go ahead and start turning there in your copy of God's Word. It's also printed in the bulletin for you. You can look at it there. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at the second half of chapter 10, starting in verse 25. We'll look at 25 to 42. So let's say that you're in Family Mart and you're there to buy a bottle of water because you're very thirsty, but your phone battery is dead, completely dead. Now, of course, you're not a caveman. You don't carry cash with you, paper money. You have to use your phone to purchase things. But what are you going to do? Well, let's say some nice stranger sees your problem here and takes the initiative to pay for your bottle of water for you. What an amazing thing. And they don't even ask to be repaid. We might call this nice stranger a good Samaritan. Or let's say there's an elderly woman who one day falls into one of the, one of the rivers here that we have all around, our, all around our city. And let's say a complete stranger, somebody she doesn't even know this old, the old woman, jumps into the gray-green water and pulls the poor woman out. Well, the news would tell the story of this heroic woman. They would use the headline, Good Samaritan Saves Elderly Swimmer. A good Samaritan is someone who is somebody who acts in a compassionate or a merciful way. So good Samaritan is, a, is part of the English language. It's used many times. There are many schools and hospitals and clinics that have good Samaritan in their name. They want to be associated with compassion, with the healing of the broken and the wounded. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning includes the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the source for all that naming, for what news, uh, news outlets use to describe someone who acts in a kind way to someone they don't know. This is the source from Luke chapter 10. But the story of the Good Samaritan is much more than just a nice story about a nice man being nice to someone he didn't know. And the purpose of the passage is to display God's mercy for people. It's to show that God is merciful. He's the one who showed compassion first for people by sending Jesus to live and to die in our place. As we look at the Good Samaritan story, we're also going to see from that, two people who were trying to save themselves. They wanted to make themselves right before God using the law or their own works. They wanted to justify themselves. And we do a similar thing. We want to justify ourselves before God. We want to follow a set of rules so that we know that then God will give us what we want. Or maybe we want to serve God. We want to do things for Him in a a sort of a karma kind of way where God then owes us something because we did these things for him. But we're going to see that this is not the proper way to think. This is not the proper way to operate as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. So let's look at what Jesus says 
about these ideas of how, are, how do we justify, how are we justified, and also the purpose and the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So you follow along as I read Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho to from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now as they went their way, Jesus, entering a, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Amen. The main message or the big idea of this passage is that Jesus alone makes us right with God. Jesus alone makes us right with God and frees us to loving action. Jesus alone makes us right with God and frees us to loving action. One more time. Jesus alone makes us right with God and frees us to loving action. We're going to take the passage in three parts. I believe it's divided into three parts in your bulletin. Verses 25 to 28, verses 29 to 36, and then verses 37 to 42. Each one will have a key or important feature that I'll point out as we go along. Now the first, the first part, the first section is 25 to 28. This is an impossible love. Impossible love. Let's look at that part again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this lawyer here was someone who was an expert in the law of the Old Testament. So he was a lawyer, not as we think of lawyer in court, but in, in a, well, in a similar way, he was a lawyer as he, far as he knew the laws very well. In chapter 7, we see Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So they rejected the baptism of John. They did not think it was legitimate. So these guys are not friends of Jesus. Jesus embraced the baptism of John as a baptism of repentance. But the lawyer is not with Jesus in order to follow him or to be a disciple. He's tracking Jesus, similar to a lion tracking their prey, waiting for a chance to pounce. That the lawyer wanted to catch Jesus saying something that was wrong according to the law. But it's interesting to see how Jesus responds to his question in kindness. He curiously asks, how do you read it? What do you think? What's your interpretation? He wants to know what the lawyer is thinking. He's curious. The lawyer answers Jesus, and when he does, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, which we read earlier. It talks about a comprehensive and all-inclusive love for God. And then the second part of his answer, your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus 19, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus affirms his answer. He says, you have answered correctly. It's like, that, that is right. Do this, and you will live. So it seems that Jesus is saying the way to inherit eternal life is to love God with everything, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But is he saying that we can be saved by doing the right thing and by following all the laws? All we have to do to guarantee our eternal life is to love God and to love people? Is that his message? That's what it seems like at first, but we can't go quite so fast. Jesus is agreeing that perfect love of God and man is required to inherit eternal life. But the problem is, and it's a big problem, it's impossible for us to do. This is an impossible love. We cannot love God and man in this way. We can never love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind completely. This is impossible. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one person does good. We cannot even think about accomplishing loving God in this way. So it is true to inherit eternal life is to love God perfectly, but this is an impossible love for us to do. 
Romans 3 continues to say that no human can make themselves right before God for following the law. The law, following the law, following rules cannot make us right before God. We all fall short. We all mess up at some point. But Romans 3 says that we can have righteousness. We can have the righteousness of God. That is, righteousness of God means right standing. We can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that this justification, which is means being made right before God, comes by God's gift of grace through the redemption of Jesus. So this type of all-encompassing, the comprehensive, everything, everything kind of love is impossible for us to attain apart from Christ. We cannot follow this perfectly. We cannot follow enough rules. We cannot love enough on our own in order to inherit eternal life on our own. We must be covered with the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who has loved God and man in this perfect way, in this impossible love. He's the one who started this type of love. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. So we do want to pursue the love of God in this way. That we would love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We want to improve and work toward loving God in these ways. Submit to his work in us to love him in this way. But we must know and remember that we love God and people with our heart, soul, strength, and mind because he first loved us. 1 John 4, after saying that we love because he first loved us, it continues and says this in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This was written by John, who would have heard this conversation. He probably was there when Jesus was talking to this lawyer. And here we see his commentary on this idea. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is how these two parts are connected. First God loved, then we love God, and as lovers of God, we also can love our brother or our neighbor in this case. So the application is to love God with everything because Christ loved us first and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But what does it mean to love someone as ourselves? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Back in chapter 6, Jesus said that as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He's talking about loving people. And he's saying, as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. Take the initiative to do to them what you would hope they would do for you. One example of this is when we come to church on Sunday mornings. We show up and we have expectations, we have hopes of how people will treat us. We hope people will greet us as a friend and say hi. We hope that people will invite us to join them for lunch. 
or maybe to meet up for coffee during the week, or join them in an activity at some point. We want people to be friendly to us. But you know, we all show up with these same hopes and expectations of other people. So, one loving thing that we can do for others, one way that we can love our neighbor as ourselves, is to be the one to take the initiative, be the one to start this friendship, the conversation. You be the one to say hi, or to invite someone to join you for lunch. Get to know people, find out what they're interested in, be a friend, but be the one to start that. Don't wait on someone else to be your friend. You be the friend. You be the one to start. And when you do, don't have the expectation that they should then be your best friend back. Don't feel like that obligates someone else to treat you in a certain way. Out of love for God, love your neighbor, those people around you, in a friendly and kind way, in the way that you would want to be loved by them. So this impossible love starts with Jesus. But we are called to pursue this impossible love by his work in us. The second section that we'll look at is verses 29 to 37. And here the the point or the idea is inexplicable mercy. Inexplicable mercy. There will not be a spelling test, so if you can't spell that, it's okay. I wouldn't be able to if I hadn't typed it. Inexplicable means that it cannot be explained. Inexplicable It cannot be explained. It's out of nowhere. It's uncommon type of mercy. Let's look again at verse 29. But he, this is the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he's hoping to draw a line of distinction between those people he is supposed to love and those people he doesn't have to love. There's a lot of people that he doesn't like. In fact, there's many people that he may hate, including many people who are not Israelites, who are not Jewish like he is. He wants to continue not liking those people. So he wants to know, where's the line? Who is my neighbor? Let's look at how Jesus replies. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. So we're introduced to this man who's leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho. It's most likely that everyone listening to this story assumed this man was an Israelite. He had been in Jerusalem, and he's making these travels. He was traveling down the road. He was robbed and beaten and left half dead. Meaning if someone does not rescue him, if someone does not help him, he's going to die. He's exposed. He's bloody. He's going to die if no one helps him. But here comes some help. Maybe. The priest and the Levite. These are temple workers. They represent the law, the rules, and also the uh, the hierarchy, I mean, the ancestry. So the, the Levites, they're people whose fathers, fathers, fathers come through this line of God's chosen people. And the priest here, who's leaving Jerusalem, it's possible that he was leaving his temple duties. 
And many times when priests were not serving at the temple, they might have been considered lawyers. So the priest here could be the person that Jesus is pointing on this law, is, is connecting to the lawyer. The lawyer may be like, oh yeah, that's, that's maybe me in the story. He's very, very connected to this man. So the priest and the Levite, like, they came, they saw, and they crossed to the other side. They saw the man in need, half dead, but they crossed to the other side. Then verse 33, look there. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritans, we must remember, these are a subgroup of people who lived between Judea and Galilee. So Jesus has been working in Galilee. Judea is here with Jerusalem. The Samaritans are in the middle. And the Samaritans come from a line that was mixed with the Israelite line at some point. And they have their own form of, of religion that's similar to Judaism, similar to the Israelites, but different enough that they don't like each other. They're enemies with each other. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Now this Samaritan, though, the enemy to the Jews, came, he saw, and he had compassion. And verse 34 says he moved close to, he moved near to the man. He went to him. And then he worked in a life-saving, life-preserving way. He gave of his own animal. He gave of his own time, his resources. He risked the open country. This man was just robbed. Those robbers could be hiding and waiting for the Samaritan to rob him. He took that risk in order to help the man. He risked the honesty of the innkeeper. He gave him money and said, take care of him and I'll pay you back. It's an open-ended account. He says, whatever you spend, I'll pay you back when I return. The innkeeper could be dishonest, and he's taking that risk. Now let's look at how Jesus finishes in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, that's the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Jesus doesn't really answer the original question of the lawyer. Because the lawyer said, and who is my neighbor? Where Jesus here says, which of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell? He's saying, who was the neighbor? Not who is my neighbor. Who acted in a neighborly way? By dismissing the original question, he's showing that there is no boundary on neighbor love. All people are our neighbors. Everyone is a neighbor. Someone that's close to me is a neighbor. There's no distinction of, oh, well, they're this kind of person. They're from this place, or they make this kind of money, so they're not my neighbor. No, everyone, anyone is our neighbor. As we read this parable, and as it's been, uh, as it's been used over, over much time, 
And as I mentioned in the introduction, how it's used so much to describe someone who shows compassion. It seems to be a moralistic fable or some kind of folk story that we should get out of it that we should be nice to people, that we should give of ourselves. But it's not actually a cute story of an unlikely hero who was nice. The application is not just to be nice to people because that's what the nice story says about nice living. No, this is not a cute story. And the point of the story, this is shocking, the point of the story is not us. It's not what we should do. The point of the parable is not moral living. It's about the compassion of God for sinful people. The point of the parable is the compassion of the Samaritan here. And the compassion of the Samaritan is a picture. It's an image of God's compassion for sinners. Think about it. As sinners, we are helpless to save ourselves. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If we don't get help, we will die for eternity, and we can do nothing to save ourselves. Living by the rules or having parents or grandparents or a whole line of people who were Christians cannot save us. It will leave us dead by the side of the road if we depend on following rules. In our time of need, being a good person will fail us, like the man lying on the side of the road. But God comes near to us. He sees us, has compassion on us, and moves toward us in our half-dead state. He doesn't have compassion on us because we deserve it. Think about the Samaritan. There was no reason why he owed this man anything. In fact, they were enemies. And in fact, we, in our sin, are enemies of God. There is no reason that God should move toward us. He owes us nothing. We are unlovely in front of him. We are ugly to him in our sin. But he has compassion on us anyways. It's out of his great and awesome love and mercy. And for no other reason than for his mercy and his love. Because he's amazing. Because he's wonderful and he's merciful. He shows mercy and compassion. He's the one who gives of himself through Jesus to be broken in order to give us new life. Amen. We must see that this is the point of the parable. God's compassion and mercy for sinners like us. We need to recognize this inexplicable mercy that God shows to his people. It's uncommon like the love that's impossible, this inexplicable mercy is, starts with God. He's the one who started this, not the Samaritan. Jesus is not an example of the Samaritan. The Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. So, we can see from this passage that even though Jesus is the author of inexplicable mercy, we too as faithful followers of Jesus, are called to be merciful toward our neighbor. There is an application to be merciful, but it does not start with the nice story and being like the Samaritan. We show mercy because God has shown mercy to us. It starts with him. 
And there's two important ways that we show mercy to people. First, is like the Samaritan, like Jesus, we need to go near. We need to go to people in need. We need to be close to people. The priest and the Levite crossed to the other side. They distanced themselves from this needy man. But the Samaritan went to him. It's really hard to avoid someone who's right next to you. And the word neighbor is gives the idea of being physically close. Think about your neighbors at your house. They are your neighbors because they live next door. You didn't pick them. You maybe wouldn't pick them. You know when they practice piano. You know when they yell at each other. You hear that too. There's proximity. There's a closeness there that you can't avoid that you have neighbors. You probably remember every single day that you have neighbors. You hear them upstairs or downstairs. Like the book of James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The reason that he says to visit orphans and widows is to be near to them. Visiting them means to go near. There's proximity. They become neighbors. And when you see people in need who are near you, it's hard to avoid their needs. It takes a cold, hard heart to then deny them any kind of help or compassion. That's why we're instructed and we should follow the example of going near to people. Paul gives us a little help with this concept in Colossians 3, verse 13. Colossians 3, 13. He says that members of a Christian church should bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So we forgive, we show mercy and compassion, because the Lord has forgiven us first. So when we have a complaint against someone, when there's conflict, somebody hurts us, then we should move toward them in love, not away from them in unforgiveness and bitterness and gossip, but move toward them in love talking to, to them about the conflict, about the hurt. That's going to create awkward and uncomfortable conversations. It's hard to talk to people about conflict, to say, it, it hurt when you said this. It bothered me when you did this. Can we talk about that? That's, that's pretty awkward. But it's also very loving. It's moving toward people. And that's what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in this church. You can say something like, hi friend, it seems like we've been off lately. Have you noticed that too? What do you, what do you think is going on between us? That can open up, that's an invitation to talk about the conflict that's there. An invitation for the other person to share what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they're going through. See, if we don't move toward people when there's conflict, especially among brothers and sisters here, then we deny people the opportunity to repent of sin or maybe even just apologize for accidentally hurting us. Sometimes someone hurts us and they don't even mean to. They don't realize that that's going on. If we don't move toward them, they'll never have the opportunity to say, I'm really sorry for not paying attention enough 
I'm sorry for that hurt. I did not want to do that at all. How can we make this right? So we want to give others the opportunity to repent. That's why we move toward them. If we say, stay far away from people, we're only hurting them, we're hurting ourselves, and we hurt the unity of our body here at WSBC. So we want to move near, to go near to people. Now second, we want to be merciful in uncommon ways, uncommon for the world, inexplicable. Not only do we go near, but we want to show mercy. So again, an example of, of coming here to church. Let's say that I'm here after church and I'm really hoping that my, my friend Phil will invite me to his house for lunch. So I ask him, hey man, what are you doing for lunch? Maybe he says, oh yeah, we're uh, having a few people over. Okay, cool. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure what I'm doing yet. Maybe Phil says, okay, well, I gotta go. See you later. You know, I I clearly wanted him to invite me over, um, and he clearly didn't. (laughs) So, how could I respond to this? Well, I could think the worst of Phil. I could be upset. Did you see that? Did you hear that? I clearly made Phil know that I wanted to have lunch with him, and he clearly did not invite me over. He must not like me. I'm from Texas. I bet he doesn't like people from Texas. <laughs> or I could think the best of Phil. You know, it's possible that he had a conversation with his wife and she said, you know, I love having people over for lunch on Sunday, but I can't have a big group. It's overwhelming. I get too exhausted. I can't do it. Can we have just a few people? And so when I'm trying to invite myself over my family of six, that maybe puts it over the <laughs> limit for his family. Maybe it's a little too much. So maybe he's loving his wife well by not inviting me and including me in their lunch plans. That's thinking the best of Phil. And I think the best thing would be to go to him and say, hey, can we get lunch together? (laughs) But of course, it's easy for us to get offended and to get hurt in these ways. And showing mercy and being compassionate, one way we can do that is to think the best of people instead of thinking the worst. Interpret what happens with the best of intentions, not the worst. Assuming that they love us and they also want good things for us. Not that they hate us and that they're against us and people like me. Now, of course, as we share in God's inexplicable mercy and show that toward other people, there's much more risky and painful ways of doing that than my example here. We can see from Jesus own words as he told this story the Samaritan gave up money time security as he displayed this mercy and we may be called to that as well but I think it's important that we get these concepts right here among our brothers and sisters because this is where we practice showing mercy loving people and we want to practice that well we want to get it right here it's much harder to do outside of here if we can't do it here. So we should ask God for the courage to lovingly act with compassion toward our neighbors, including everyone who's here with us today. So we've looked at impossible love, inexplicable mercy. Point number three is irresistible Savior. Irresistible Savior. 
verses 38 to 42. Irresistible means captivating, magnetic. It pulls you in. You cannot stay away from it. Let's look at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So as they continue on their journey, remember they're moving toward Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be crucified. But as they move on their journey, they they leave the lawyer, but the point is still that Jesus saves us out of love and mercy and not because of anything that we do for ourselves. And we're introduced to Martha. She's a homeowner and has enough resources to be able to host Jesus. And we're also introduced to Mary, her sister. Verse 39 says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. She takes the position of a disciple. It's a lower position, seated on the floor. And she's listening to the teacher as he teaches. He is the teacher and she is the student. It's a humble position before the Lord. Martha, however, is not in the position of a disciple. Instead, she's hostzilla, serving herself into a hot mess. I wonder what's going on in her mind. She's thinking about all the responsibilities and the things that need taken care of. People need fed, beds need made, water needs brought in, bread needs baked. There needs to be wine, pouring glasses and blankets and a fire started to cook the bread and on and on and on. All the responsibilities are rolling in her mind. Now Martha's fed up. She's done serving alone. She looks around and sees her sister sitting while she's working. Maybe she's thinking, why am I the only one around here who's working? Am I the only one to do all these things? So she goes to Jesus and confronts him. Look at verse 40, what she says. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She accurately calls Jesus Lord, but then she launches into accusing him of not caring. She says, do you not care? She accuses her sister of being lazy. And then she tells Jesus what to do. She says, tell her then to help me. If you care, which it seems like you don't, but if you do, then tell her to help me. I think about the relationship between Jesus and Martha at this point. Jesus is not an old man. He's relatively young. He's probably 32, around 32 years old right now. Martha may have been much older than him. She's a homeowner. She has a younger sister, but it seems that Mary is an adult. So it's possible that she was much older. So put it in context of going to your hometown. If you go to your Laoja and you stay with your parents for some visit, who calls the shots? Who's in charge at your house? It's probably your mom, at least on some level, right? 
She who cooks the food makes the rules, is maybe how it goes. Something like that. So Martha maybe assumes that she's in charge of her own house. She gets to determine what people do. She can tell people, help me with this. You do this. And that's what she wants to do. But Mary is not cooperating. And so she's trying to get Jesus to come to her side and to her aid. Martha maybe assumes that her service to, to Jesus obligates him to do what she wants. Because she's serving him, he will then do what she wants and help her in this mission to get others involved in helping. She maybe assumes that Jesus wants this kind of service, that this is the type of service that's helpful and that's good for him. But I think similar to the lawyer, and maybe even without realizing, Martha wants to earn her eternal salvation based on her actions. She wants to serve, she wants to do good deeds in order to justify herself or to make herself right before God. She has it backwards, she has it wrong. Now, I would have been offended by Martha's comments. I think I would, if I was Jesus, it would have angered me. But I'm not Jesus. Thankfully, everybody's happy about that. Jesus, though, responds in a kind way. Look at verse 41 and how he talks to her. She's just accused him of not caring. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. It says, Martha, Martha. What a calming and kind way to say her name twice. This is not a yelling. This is, this is a calming. Let her know that he sees her. He sees what's going on. And he even says, you're anxious and troubled about many things. He can see that she's running around, taking care of things and serving. But he tells her that that's not what's necessary. There's one thing that's necessary. And he says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will be, not be taken from her. Mary has discovered and is doing the one thing that matters. That's being near Jesus and listening to his words. She's near Jesus and listening to his words. She's captivated. She's captivated by Jesus. He is the irresistible Savior to her. Her attention, her focus is locked on Jesus. She's near him in that humble position at his feet, while Martha is running around, acting similar to a mother to Jesus. Martha's left the one important thing and is captivated by the wrong things. Work, service, responsibility, where Mary is leaving the things of the world for the irresistible Savior of Jesus. And Jesus says that Mary has made the right choice. So what do you find irresistible? What captivates you? Are you striving to make yourself right before God by doing service, by working? Do you serve, do you give of your time and your money? Maybe even recycle so that God will love you and God will owe you eternal life or a good life now? Well, if we're ever at the point where we're like Martha, and we say to God, do you not care? That's a warning sign. That's a red flag. That we're trying to do it on our own. That we're thinking that our works, that what we do, the good things, the good deeds, are what save us and will make us right before God. 
But God is the loving Father. Even when we say, do you not care? He responds to us like he responded to Martha, saying, Martha, Martha, John, John, Kelly, Kelly, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. That one thing is the good portion, is to draw near to Jesus and to listen to his words. We too need to do the same thing. Pursue the good portion, draw near to Jesus, and listen to his words. One way to do that this week would be to read in the Gospel of Luke and pay attention to what Jesus says. Pay attention to other places where he's challenged or he's tested, and how does he respond? What is his message? It's a message of love for sinners. I struggle with this on my own. I'm responsible for many things, or at least it seems like I am. Even at church, I'm responsible for lots of scheduling things, service leaders and preachers and the texts that we're preaching and uh, membership class and students and evening service preachers and evening service locations, and so you get the picture. So sometimes those things rattle around in my head. And it, many times I sit down to read and to pray And my mind goes to these scheduling things. Oh yeah, I need to ask Gabe to do this and I need to ask Josh. And and I start being consumed with the schedule instead of being consumed with the Lord and sitting at his feet and listening to his words. So I have to repent of this often and reorient my, my mind to think again about sitting at his feet, drawing near to Jesus and listening to his words. I think if I'm too busy for Jesus, then I'm too busy. I think that goes for all of us. If we're too busy for Jesus, then we're just too busy. Like Martha, we're thinking about the work and the responsibilities. But Jesus does not support that choice. He says that Mary has chosen the good portion, and we too should choose the good portion to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words. Let's choose that this week. I recommend telling a friend, how do you plan on spending time with the Lord? How do you plan on sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his words? What do you plan on reading? When are you going to do it? Think about a plan for being captivated by Jesus. And then tell somebody about what your plan is. It's going to stick so much better if you talk to somebody about it. Because you know that you're going to talk to them about it again. And it's helpful to solidify it and actually follow through with our plans when we tell others. So share with somebody today what you're planning, how you're planning on applying this to your life, how you're planning to draw near to Jesus and to listen to his words. So this morning we've looked at how the lawyer wanted to justify himself with his rules. He wanted the right rules so that he could have eternal life on his own. We also have seen how Martha also wanted to justify herself by working and to serving, to obligate God to give her what she wanted, instead of humbling herself and listening to the teaching of Jesus. But Jesus is the irresistible Savior. He justifies us. He makes us right with God. If you're not a Christian, then I urge you today to put your faith in Jesus. 
He offers the free gift of salvation to all people. And he requires repentance of sin and belief in Jesus as your Savior. Do that today. Don't leave without accepting Jesus as your Savior. For Christians, we are right with God through the work of Jesus. And because of his work, then we are free to this impossible love. The impossible love of loving God and loving people. And we're free to show God's inexplicable mercy to our neighbors. We must remember that this love and this mercy are a result of what God has done for us out of his love and mercy. So the love and mercy we show is an overflow, is an outpouring of our heart, a heart that is made right with God. Let's pray. God, we love you because you first loved us. Help us to love you and serve you with our whole selves for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.